If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Being a successful murderer and being a successful real estate agent have at least one thing in common. It's all about location, location, location. Think about it. The most successful murders are those committed far away from witnesses or the proper authorities. This is something Hollywood caught on to long ago. The setting of a good old-fashioned horror story can make or break a scary movie. Like a crumbling gothic castle or an abandoned insane asylum. These are the sort of archetypical locations that automatically signal danger. That's because they're the sort of places where the main character is isolated, and therefore, at their most vulnerable. One of the more popular locations that has appeared time and again in a lot of horror movies is the lonely cabin in the woods. Movies like The Evil Dead, Friday the 13th, Cabin Fever, and of course Cabin in the Woods, all show how vulnerable we are when we're isolated in the forest miles from nowhere. But in many ways, life really does imitate art, as the saying goes. Or perhaps it's the other way around. Because many times before, a real-life cabin in the woods has been the setting of some very real murders. I'm Nate Hale, and I have my hockey mask polished and my chainsaw all gassed up for my next summer vacation. And this is The Conspirators. The winter of 1923 was a harsh one in central Oregon. Roy Wilson and Dewey Morris were loggers for the Brooks Scanlon Company, and they sometimes did a little work on the side as trappers during their off months. They spent the winter of 23 living in a log cabin and trapping near Big Lava Lake with the cabin's caretaker, Ed Nichols. But by the following April, Innes Morris, Dewey Morris's brother, and Pearl Linz the superintendent of the Tumalo Fish Hatchery, began to get worried when the three men hadn't been heard from for quite some time. And they began to notice that the mink traps were not being cared for. When a group of searchers arrived at the cabin in April 1924, they immediately knew something was wrong. There were pots on the stove filled with burned food. Plates were laid out on the table for a meal that had never been eaten. A heavy sled the trappers used for transport was missing. Out behind the cabin was a pen that was supposed to contain five very valuable foxes that belonged to the cabin's owner, a wealthy trapper named Ed Logan, who allowed the men to stay there in exchange for caring for his animals. Only the foxes weren't in the pen, but what was in their place only disturbed them further. A blood-stained hammer 
By the following day, they found the heavy sled out on the frozen big lava lake. They found bloodstains inside the sled and a depression in the ice where someone had chiseled open a hole that had since frozen over and filled with snow. A short while after, one of the searchers found a patch of bloody snow a short distance away that turned out to also contain a human front tooth and a clump of hair. By now, the investigators were fairly certain the three missing men were somewhere out there under the ice. But it wouldn't be until another day later, when the ice partially melted, that they discovered the decomposing bodies floating on the lake's surface. Ed Nichols still had his reading glasses on, but the lower part of his face wasn't there anymore. A close-range shotgun blast had blown his lower jaw and part of his chest away. A watch in his front pocket had stopped at ten minutes after nine. Another shotgun blast had torn away most of Roy Wilson's right shoulder, and there was another bullet lodged behind his right ear. Dewey Morris had taken some buckshot in his left arm, and there was a hole about the size of a silver dollar below the base of his right ear. The cabin's owner, Ed Logan, gave the police their first promising suspect, a fellow we knew as Lee Collins, who had trapped with Nichols the previous year, and who had gotten into an altercation with his former trapping partner over a missing wallet. The argument got pretty heated between them, and Nichols told Logan that Collins had actually threatened to kill him. It turns out the authorities were already familiar with Lee Collins when he went by a different name, Charles Kimsey. Kimsey had a lengthy police record, including an escape from an Idaho prison. Police were currently after Kimsey for the attempted murder of a motorist he severely beat and robbed a few months earlier. A reward of $1,500 was offered for Kimsey's arrest, but it wouldn't be until 1933 a full nine years after the Lava Lake murders, that the man was finally captured. Despite having a load of circumstantial evidence connecting Kimsey to the murders, he refused to confess, as did a couple of key witnesses who initially placed Kimsey near the scene. So Kimsey was never successfully tried for the Lava Lake murders. He still ended up getting life in prison, though, for the earlier attempted murder charge, And although many in the law enforcement community believed Kimsey to be the perpetrator of the Lava Lake murders, the case remains officially unsolved. The Lava Lake murders are just one example of the sort of terrible things that have happened in isolated cabins in the woods. There's one story in particular I'd like to tell you about that happened nearly 40 years ago. Of a woman and her children who fled a terrible situation, only to end up in a nightmare beyond imagination. Glenna Sue Sharp, known to everyone as Sue, was a 36-year-old mother of five who in 1979 left an abusive relationship in Connecticut to move across the country for a fresh start in California. Sue and her kids eventually found their way to the former tourist town of Keddy, part of Plumas County in the northern part of the state. Back when the town was founded in 1910, hunters and fishermen came from miles around because of the abundance of local wildlife. But by 1980, the tourist trade had all but dried up, and the town gained a reputation as a sort of place where the American dream went to die. 
Although there were rumors about drug dealers moving into the area and the occasional reports of petty crimes, the town was still considered to be a safe place. A place where you could raise your family and you didn't need to lock your doors at night. At least that's what Sue Sharp thought. After the local economy collapsed during the 1970s, the Keddie Resort Lodge was forced to lower their prices, which brought in a stream of low-income residents looking for a cheap roof over their heads. In November 1980, Sue Sharp and her children moved into Cabin 28 of the Keddie Resort Lodge. It wasn't exactly luxury accommodations, but compared to the cramped trailer they previously occupied back in Quincy, it was practically a palace. Sue's oldest son, 15-year-old Johnny, stayed in the basement bedroom, while the younger boys, 10-year-old Ricky and 5-year-old Greg, shared a bedroom off the main living area. Sue shared the master bedroom with her 12-year-old daughter Tina and 14-year-old Sheila. Life wasn't easy for the Sharps. Money was always tight, and they lived off food stamps and a small military stipend from Sue's ex. During this time, Sue attended a small business trade school, where she got a reputation as a hard worker and a decent student. She was a private person who developed a reputation as something of a loner. Although she dated a few men from the area, Sue would eventually develop a steady relationship with a local man named Daryl, whom she would sometimes allow to stay with her in the cabin. But Daryl was away from town on April 11, 1981, leaving Sue home alone with the kids. Early that night, Johnny was away visiting a friend in the town of Quincy, eight miles away. Tina and Sheila watched TV over in another cabin rented by some friends named the Seabolts. Tina returned to cabin 28 around 10 p.m., while Sheila planned on staying the night with the Seabolts over in cabin 27. Back in Sue's cabin, her children went to bed around 10 p.m. They were joined that night by a friend of Ricky's, a 12-year-old boy named Justin Smart. At about a quarter to eight the next morning, Sheila returned to cabin 28, planning to change into her Sunday clothes to get ready for church. But when Sheila opened the door, she was met with a scene out of her worst nightmare. There on the living room floor were the blood-soaked bodies of her mother, her brother Johnny, and Johnny's friend, 17-year-old Dana Wingate. Red stains were everywhere and the walls and furniture were gouged with deep slashes from a knife. Sheila ran screaming for help back to cabin 27. The Seabolts called the police, then they returned with Sheila to the other cabin, where they began rapping on the windows to see if anyone else was still alive inside. They were relieved to discover that the two younger sharp boys and their friend Justin were all alive and that it appeared the three of them had slept through the previous night's massacre. They helped the boys climb out the bedroom window, sparing them from having to witness the bloodbath out in the living room. Officers from the Plumas County Sheriff's Department were on the scene by shortly after 8 a.m., but right from the start, many mistakes were made in the investigation. The officers failed to properly secure the crime scene, and by the end of the morning, numerous deputies and other people had traipsed through the crime scene before all evidence was properly collected and catalogued. But that was just the beginning of the problems with the sheriff's investigation. 
The three bodies were all bound with various lengths of medical tape and then double-bound with electrical wires. The medical tape indicated some level of premeditation on the part of the murderers because no such tape was located on the premises, meaning the killer or killers likely brought it with them. Near one of the bodies, the investigators found what they first thought was a pocket knife, only to discover it was really a steak knife that had been struck with so much force that the blade had bent backwards. In addition to the steak knife, police also found a 7-inch bloody butcher knife that the killer or killers had left behind. All three bodies had been bound around the hands and wrists. Someone had used a blanket from Tina's bed to cover Sue's remains. She was also the only body to be gagged. The killer had used a pair of Sue's own underwear and a bandana to gag her. Sue and the two boys had all been severely beaten with two different hammers, only one of which was found at the scene. The medical examiner also determined that it appeared that Sue had been beaten with the butt of a Daisy Powerline 880 rifle as well. Dana Wingate had been beaten with an unknown weapon and strangled to death. Sue and her son, Johnny, had both suffered numerous stab wounds to their upper abdomens. The extent of their injuries was so great that the medical examiner was unable to determine whether the beatings or the stab wounds were what ultimately caused their deaths. Police tagged more than 100 pieces of evidence from the crime scene, including several bloody fingerprints that were never matched to any suspect. In fact, there was such a mountain of evidence left behind at the scene that the investigators came to believe a few things about the crime. That the murders were likely committed by multiple individuals. That the killers weren't very experienced criminals since they had left so much evidence behind. And that whoever they were, the level of violence indicated that they held a serious grudge against Sue or her family. Sheila and her brothers realized right away their sister Tina was missing from the house. But despite repeatedly trying to alert the deputies that Tina was missing, they were all but ignored for nearly an entire day before police finally took them seriously and began to look for the 12-year-old girl. The following day, the Sheriff's Department finally alerted the Department of Justice about the horrific crimes. It was far and away the most brutal crime that had ever occurred in the area, as well as the most baffling. Police questioned the three boys who were in the room right next to where the murders occurred. But at least at first, they all claimed to have slept through the night of violence. But that might not have been true. Reports say that five-year-old Greg Sharp initially made statements claiming to have been awake during the murders, but he later changed his story to match that of the two older boys and told police that he was asleep all night. 12-year-old Justin would later tell police that he had a dream that Sue, Johnny, and Dana had been killed, and that Tina had been kidnapped by two men. Despite insisting that it had all been a dream, Justin stuck to his story that he slept to the crimes occurring less than 10 feet from the bedroom where he slept. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, 
not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Justin was able to give a thorough description of the two men he claimed he dreamt about, one of whom had short dark hair and the other had long brown hair. He was able to describe the men in detail all the way down to the clothing they wore, although he also claimed that the entire dream took place on a boat and that Johnny and Dana had both been thrown overboard by the two men. Justin was later given a polygraph test, but immediately after completing the test, he admitted to the polygraph technician that he really had been awake that night and that he'd seen everything. Justin then revealed that he had been startled awake that night by a loud noise. He got up and peeked through the partially open bedroom door to see the two men he described standing over Sue, who was lying on the couch. Then Johnny and Dana came into the cabin through the front door, and a loud argument ensued, followed by a fight. Dana tried to flee, but the brown-haired man knocked her down with a blow to the head from a hammer. Johnny was attacked with a knife and Sue rushed to defend him, only to get stabbed herself. The men tied them up. At that point, Justin retreated backwards into the bedroom in order to hide. Tina came out of the master bedroom, dragging her yellow blanket behind her, and asked what was going on. According to Justin, the men grabbed Tina and dragged her outside. A few minutes later, the brown-haired man came back into the cabin and covered Sue's body with the blanket. Now, you'd think that in a normal investigation, Justin would have been an ideal witness. He claimed to have seen everything, and he was able to provide police with details of the crimes that he couldn't possibly have known unless he really had seen them. Not only that, but the following morning after Justin returned home to Cabin 26, his mother realized he had blood in his shoes, indicating that he had gone out in the living room with the bodies. It's also believed that Justin actually touched one of the bodies because there was blood on the inside bedroom doorknob. Justin's mother gave the bloody shoes to the police, but they later claimed to have lost them. Although Justin was able to give many details of what occurred that night, including a couple of pretty thorough descriptions of the murderers, he was less forthcoming about their actual identities. Now, it's possible Justin didn't know who they were, but another possibility is that he knew them quite well and feared what would happen if he told. Justin's father was a man named Marty Smart, and he would soon become a person of interest in the investigation. He lived in Cabin 26 with his wife Marilyn and her two sons from a previous marriage. Lately, he had also been letting another man named Severin John Bo Obeid stay with him. Marty met Bo at the VA hospital in Reno, Nevada, where he was being treated for PTSD. There were rumors that Bo had ties to organized crime back in Chicago. The two men hit it off and began making plans to start a business together. That's when Marty invited Bo to come stay with him for a while. In the weeks preceding the murders, Bo ran into Sue on a few occasions and reportedly expressed some romantic interest in her that was not reciprocated. At the same time, Marty and Marilyn's marriage was on the verge of collapsing. They had many loud arguments, and Marilyn was reportedly becoming more and more concerned for her safety around Marty. On the night of the murders, police learned that Marty, Bo, and Marilyn stopped by Sue's cabin early in the evening. 
Marilyn told police that she invited Sue to come with them to a local bar, but Sue declined. Marty claimed he got angry at the bar over the music they were playing, and he had words with the manager about it. He left in a huff, with Bo and Marilyn right behind him. Marilyn said she watched TV for a while before going to bed. Marty told police that he made an angry phone call to the bar about the music before heading back out there with Bo. Detectives from the Department of Justice questioned the trio and soon determined they weren't involved, which seems awfully unusual considering some of the suspicious things Marty, Bo, and Marilyn said and did following the murders. Marilyn told the investigators that she left Marty the very next day after the murders because he was both verbally and physically abusive toward her. That same morning, witnesses claimed they saw Marty burning some debris outside his cabin, along with a pair of men's shoes. Marilyn would later tell police that she found a bloody hammer in her basement, although years later she would deny ever making the statement. On April 17th, the DOJ brought Marty Smart in for questioning, during which time they conducted a polygraph test on him, which he reportedly passed. The DOJ detectives, Harry Bradley and P.A. Krim Jr., appeared to go strangely easy on Marty and Bo during questioning. At one point, Bo made the false claim that he had once been a police officer himself, which seemed to smooth things over between them and the detectives. During their interviews, Bo and Marty both made a number of suspicious statements, which should have raised many red flags. At first, Bo told the detectives that he knew which cabin the murders occurred in, then later changed his story in mid-interview and claimed he had no idea which cabin it was. Bo also made the unusual claims that Marilyn was his niece, although they weren't related in any way, and that he'd been staying with the Smarts for about a month when he'd only been staying there for about two weeks. He claimed he never met Sue Sharp, even though it was known that he met her at least twice before. Bo also told detectives that Marilyn was awake when he and Marty returned from the bar the second time, even though she told detectives that she was asleep. The detectives never called Bo out for this or any other discrepancy, though. Some of the statements Marty made during his interview were even more damning. At one point, he claimed that Sue's son, Justin, could have seen something without, quote, me detecting him. Yet remarkably, investigators let this admission pass without comment. Marty then followed this up by telling the detectives that he'd heard Sue and the boys had been beaten with hammers, along with being stabbed, and that by sheer coincidence, he had lost his own hammer shortly before the murders. Marty then told Bradley and Krim that he thought the murders were a lot of overkill, and that he would have done the deed fast and got out of there quick if it had been him. Despite all these suspicious statements, the DOJ detectives never performed any follow-up interviews, and they allowed Marty and Bo to leave town following the murders. Marty moved to Klamath, California, while Bo returned to the Reno, Nevada VA hospital, where he began living under the name Bobby Lake. Part of what some people believe helped Marty get off so easy in the investigation is that he was good friends with the Plumas County Sheriff, Doug Thomas, who was in charge of the investigation into Sue Sharp's murder. In fact, Doug Thomas and Marty Smart actually lived together at one time. In July of that year, Thomas announced his sudden retirement, Thomas never revealed what prompted him to take his early retirement. He later became an insurance salesman and a part-time instructor at Feather River College in Quincy, California. 
1984, a full three years after her abduction, part of Tina's skull was found in the woods near Feather Falls, nearly 30 miles away from where the other murders occurred. A further examination of the area revealed a piece of Tina's lower jaw and a few other bone fragments that belonged to her. But there were so few remains discovered it would prove impossible to determine a cause of death. A month after the murders occurred, Marty called a therapist and told him that he was being accused of the murders. That same therapist would finally come forward ten years after Marty's death in 2000 and told the Plumas County Sheriff's Department that Marty had confessed to him that he had killed Sue Sharp. Marty told the therapist that he thought he was going to get away with it because a friend of his was a sheriff, and that he'd been easily able to beat the lie detector test. He told his therapist that he had murdered Sue because she was trying to talk Marilyn into divorcing him. According to the therapist, Marty only confessed to murdering Sue and did not indicate who killed Johnny, Dana, or Tina. Although the story told by the therapist caused the Plumas County Sheriff's Department to look once again into the murders, right away the investigators would run into a couple of literal dead ends, since both Marty and Bo were both dead of natural causes by then. Bo died in 1988, while Marty died in 2000. After the murders, the surviving Sharp children went to live with their father. The town of Keddie, which had already been struggling, now found itself forever tied to one of the most brutal crimes in the area's history. In 2004, Cabin 28 was demolished along with several other abandoned buildings around the campgrounds. Whereas all the circumstantial evidence seems to lead back to Marty Smart and Bo Bobeed, other theories have been poured forth about other potential suspects. Some people have speculated that Sue got involved in the local drug trade and was killed because of a drug deal gone wrong. Other people have suggested Johnny and Dana might have hitchhiked their way back to Cabin 28 that fateful night and got picked up by some deranged lunatics they led back home. Further speculation has even suggested that the murders could be convicted serial killers Leonard Lake and Charles Ng, who resembled the composite sketch that was made from Justin's description. But the Keddie murders occurred a few years before Lake and Ng were known to begin their killing spree in 1984. The FBI put forth a theory that 12-year-old Tina had been groomed by an unknown older man who committed the murders before taking the girl away, and that it had been Tina who had covered her mother with the blanket before leaving voluntarily with the older man. Tina had been sexually molested by a man who went to prison for the offense a few years earlier, and some people have suggested that this same man may have gotten out of prison not long before the murders and come looking for her. The major problem with any of these theories is there is little evidence to support them, whereas the evidence surrounding Marty and Bo's potential guilt keeps mounting. In 2013, the Sheriff's Department once again reopened the investigation and discovered several new and startling pieces of evidence, one of which is a letter Marty Smart wrote to Marilyn after the murders in which he said, I've paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we are through. What else do you want? After divorcing Marty, Marilyn married, then divorced Marty's best friend. She claims she never received the letter from Marty in which he made his startling admission. And whereas many modern investigators believe Marilyn knows more than she ever let on, she has remained silent on what happened the night of the murders to this day. She still lives in California. In 2016, a man with a metal detector found a rusty hammer in a pond near where the cabins once stood, 
that matches the description of the hammer owned by Marty Smart that he claims to have lost. It's currently being tested for DNA by the authorities. Investigators also recently discovered a recording of a long-forgotten anonymous 911 call that came in a couple weeks after the skull fragments were discovered in Butte County. The anonymous caller correctly identified the fragments as belonging to Tina Sharp, even before investigators were able to confirm the bones were hers through dental records. No one has ever come forward to identify the mystery caller's voice to this day. Today the site where the Keddie cabins once stood is a weed-strewn field. Occasionally, curiosity seekers and true crime programs come through there looking to see the infamous murder site. As often happens in any location where a violent death has occurred, stories persist that the ghosts of the deceased still haunt the area. Some people have claimed to have seen the spirit of a young girl, presumably Tina, standing on the location of where Cabin 28 once stood. Whether you believe ghosts are real, or just a metaphorical representation of a dark moment in history, one can only hope that the renewed interest of modern investigators into the case can finally put the spirits of the past to rest. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I need to give a shout-out to my latest Patreon supporter, Akabaku. Thanks so much for your support. Just a reminder that patrons can get access to all sorts of rewards like t-shirts, magnets, stickers, and other goodies. Not to mention our patron-exclusive mini-episodes. As always, I invite you to rate and review us on iTunes. Your reviews really help us spread the word about the show and grow our audience. I'm so grateful to each and every one of you who has taken the time to leave us a review. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, not to worry. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, or your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.